0: I spend a lot of time on Twitter. On a normal day in a normal year, it is a dumpster fire. But over the past couple of months, with the pandemic, terrible leadership on both sides of the pond, and just like a constant barrage of people doing the wrong things, it's grown to new unprecedented levels of toxicity. But every once in a while, I stumble into something lovely, some good news. A photo of someone who, against all the odds, triumphed through a difficult situation. A story about someone who experienced a moment of unexpectedly beautiful human kindness. Or a thread that makes me laugh so much that I have to share it with everyone I know. One of my favorite things about the past couple of months has been reading and watching stories about people who, in the midst of the chaos, grief, and uncertainty, have chosen to do good. To reach out, lift people up, and do what they can to make their slice of the world a little bit better. I'm Rufaro and you're listening to Class of 2020, a podcast about studying, graduating, and coming of age in the midst of a pandemic. This week's episode is all about students across the country who've been using the past couple of months to positively affect their local communities and help some of the people who've been hit hardest by the pandemic. From education to climate change, social isolation to better medical care, I'm gonna speak to students who, inspired by their own experiences, are working to create real change in the world around them. Episode 7, Spark Change, Do Good. In last week's episode about mental health, I spoke to Professor Bruce Hood about the Science of Happiness course he launched at the University of Bristol. Part of the course talks about altruism, doing good, and the positive effect that helping others has on our mental health. And so, I spoke to him about his research and understanding of the topic.
1: I mean, contrary to popular belief, helping yourself is not the best way to help yourself. Helping others produces more sustained happiness. Now, part of the reason, of course, is that the areas which are kind of the pleasure centers of the brain, you know, the kind of, I'm excited because I've done something, they get triggered when you help other people because we're such a social animal. The effects of helping others are so counterintuitive, but there's studies done, for example, by Elizabeth Dunn in Canada. They did this study where they gave them either $5 or $20, and they said, You've either got to spend it on yourself or you've got to spend it on somebody else. And of course, they gave them these happiness measures. At the end of the day, they contacted them, and as you, not surprisingly, as I've already said, the people who spent the money on another person, buying them a cup of coffee in Starbucks, wherever, they experienced a higher rise in happiness compared to those who spent the money on themselves. And this isn't just a kind of Western phenomenon. They've tried this in about 146 countries. And even in countries where five dollars is actually a considerable amount of money, you get the same effect. So I think it speaks volumes to the fact that we're a very social animal and we have this internal, well most of us have this internal compass of morality that when we do things for other people, it just generates a what economists call a warm glow. It's captured by Abraham Lincoln when he said when I do good fathers, I feel good and that's my religion and basically he was pointing out that there is this real intrinsic value from helping other people even people who don't believe it'll make any difference once they've done it they say you know what I really enjoyed that because we walk around with this assumption that you should always kind of you know prioritize your own needs first. But actually, no. Um, altruism literally triggers in your brain the reward centers. And there's the neuroimaging studies showing that going on. And I gets back to the point I said earlier on that, you know, how do you want to look back on this time during pandemic? Do you want to reflect upon the fact that you cowered in your room just fearful? Or do you want to say, actually, you know what I did is I volunteered, I helped people, I made other people's lives a little bit better. And you know, that sort of paying it forward kind of approach to life does pay dividends to oneself.
0: Seeing an issue, realising what you can do and going out of your way to make a change can have an incredibly beneficial effect on your sense of belonging, fulfilment and purpose. So, I reached out to students from across the country who've been working to spark change and give back to their local communities. First, we're gonna talk about sustainability, then education, gonna explore community and then end with healthcare. I hope this episode gives you a hopeful and optimistic start to the week. Sustainability. So
2: I'm Leora Marcus. I live in London. I have just finished my second year of uni. I studied
0: medicine at Nottingham. In the midst of lockdown, to how her boredom and the environment, Leora started an initiative in her local community to recycle the plastic gloves people were using in their everyday lives to protect themselves from COVID. I asked her about how she came up with the idea.
2: Well, I would love to say I'm like a researcher and I'm always Googling and like trying to keep up to date entirely. I was on Facebook. As when you're in lockdown and you're very poor, you're always on either Facebook or Instagram or some on Facebook, scrolling through, and I saw one of those videos, you know the ones where they make a rhyme and just like with kids, and those get to me, they really, really make me think. It's quite soft, I would say, but it was one of those, like, saying how before lockdown the environment was quite damaged and nobody cared. Nobody was thinking about what they were doing or where things were going with their life. They only thought about the right now. So it was quite like an extreme image of what the majority of people are like. And then they were saying, even though there was a pandemic, in the long run, it's gonna help the environment because obviously people are cycling, people are walking, pollution's gone down massively. So like the climate's really taking a good side of it. There's a positive out of the virus, obviously after all of these negatives. I do a lot of environmental acts every day. I try to make it part of my, daily living me being very conscious and just trying to like get one person to be thinking about like using a reusable straw or like putting something in the recycling just like that is me saying i've done my bit but i've always felt like even though it is doing your bit because if you can get one more person to be more involved and more focused environmentally conscious you are doing so much i just thought there's got to be a way that we can do more because everyone is being so helpful, so kind in this time that we could also be kind to the environment. So and I had a Google, thought about it, thought I use loads of gloves in my labs, I get really upset about it, everyone is in PPE at the moment, same thing going on, see PPE littering the street at the moment, in front of every supermarket in my area, it's like such a shame because obviously people are looking after themselves, so great, but also not ideal So then I thought there must be a way to do something. So then I found a company called Paracycle and just went from there. Started getting my community involved, getting my friends involved, which is great, yeah.
0: Liora saw an issue in her local community, saw the effect that she was having on her environment, and realized that if she wanted to see a change, she had to take matters into her own hands. I asked her what the experience has been like so far.
2: It's a curve, I would say. It was difficult at the start, then I had two amazing friends who contacted me the moment I put something out on my Facebook. They were like, I'd love to help you get involved. So they became the beach marks, quotation marks, the team. So they've been really helping me, supporting me. Um, And also like my sister and thing, she's been really supporting me through this whole thing, my whole family. But it's difficult to get people to get involved when it's something that they haven't done before. So they're they're not as keen to do it because nobody else is doing it. It's not like a trend. Like with plastic bags in supermarkets, everyone stops using bags. So now it's a given that you wouldn't use a plastic bag. So it's the same kind of thing like it's a given you would just chuck away the gloves because also to keep yourself safe so we needed to find a way to make sure that everybody was safe and making sure that it wasn't too much hassle so in the beginning it was difficult to get people involved but then i just kept on pushing it I had a bit of down times i was calling shops i was calling like charities and things like that really trying to get people involved I had a lot of turn downs and then suddenly I was like a little peak. and then we got to the top of the peak things were starting to go well and then i made a facebook page i got in touch with newspapers to raise awareness because realistically Everything I'm doing is just to raise awareness. Like I'm here for just to boost more people to be aware, to think about things they are doing. But if everybody thinks about it, they might be more conscious about other PPE they're using, like a
0: reusable mask and stuff. Since starting the initiative, she's been getting a great response. There are now 15 people in London operating draft-off points, with more and more people messaging her to get involved. So people can bring their
2: gloves. They don't have to get in contact with anybody. They don't need to be any fear of getting too close, social distance, anything like that and I'll be box outside their house and they just put the gloves in the box and they walk away and they don't ever have to see them again. And then after like two weeks, I'll go around and collect them from everybody. So once the Facebook page took off, then everything is really going well. More and more
0: gloves. Never been so excited to be a big man. Trying to create change in your local community can be pretty hard. Some people are met with resistance and others with apathy. So I asked Leora what her experience was.
2: I got a lot of, wow, that's really cool. Great idea which was nice and supportive, but I didn't want the comments and the praise, I wanted the gloves. I found like a couple of neighbours starting to get involved, and then it actually got better because I have like a local high street, very small, about six shops. And then one day I like built up the confidence just to walk in and say, Hi, do you want to collect your gloves that you've used? I know it's a bit gross, but I going to recycle them for you. And then one by one, each of them said yes, and I was like, oh my gosh. It's working, like everyone is being supportive of it. And also I got in contact with a couple of newspapers and they were really keen about it, which is really good. So that really just like raised awareness and made even more people get in touch. So then my wider community became even more
0: involved, which is really cool. Then I asked her what she's learned from the experience and hopes to continue to apply in her life and community.
2: You can have more faith in people than you would expect. Because I always felt like I was the kind of, Eco warrior, you don't want to that name, it's such a negative thing. Like, people go, Oh, you're an eco warrior, like, bit too much. No one wants to hear that. And I was ashamed almost at the beginning to put these things on my Facebook, I would never post on my Facebook these kind of things. And now it's like weekly, I'm posting things about like pollution in the sea and like all these different things, like, week after week. And I'm realizing that I'm getting more support out of it than I entirely expected. I'm even getting like People messaging me saying, "Oh, Laura, I, I did this day. I recycled this," and I'm like, "That's so cool!" Because maybe we can make
0: everyone be an eco warrior and be the norm. So. That's quite cool. Did this conversation make you want to be more sustainable with the way you use plastic gloves? It definitely made me think. So I asked Leora for tips on how to become more sustainable in the midst of the pandemic.
2: I wouldn't say I'm some leader and have all of these brilliant ideas because there's so many more people who've got probably more better ideas than I do. I just have one and I kind of hope for the best around with it. But I would say that, for example, reusable masks, that's a really good idea. Masks are going to become like a Part of our everyday life they're going to be our new earrings our new t-shirts our new bags like it's going to be the look who's wearing the best mask so i would say that obviously i want safety to be first i don't want anyone to be recycling for the sake of oh i'm doing it for the recycling but then go and get really ill because that is completely counterproductive to the whole idea it's supposed to be safe for you and safe for the environment so i would say Reusable mask is a massive starter. Like you doing that is huge. You're also advertising to people that you can recycle so easily and you're reducing things, um, which is great. Anything else I could think of? PPE is obviously very difficult. So I know people wearing reusable gloves. Give that a go. But I would just say if it makes you more conscious, like conscious about what's going on. Like even with doing this project, I've been very aware of my carbon footprint. Because okay, I'm recycling gloves, but if I'm driving around my car to every stop to pick up the gloves, and then I'm sending them off somewhere else, which is going to need more energy to like recycle them to clean them, all of that, it would just defeat the point of recycling in the first place. It would just be more of a hinder. So if you can walk somewhere, I mean the weather is great. If you can walk somewhere, cycle somewhere, and carry it on into your everyday life, because people are getting so much more conscious of the outdoor space and things around them, which is so great. And if it can continue after lockdown, then I feel like lockdown would have been a positive despite the negatives of people getting ill.
0: No matter who you are, where you're from, or what you do, Leora would love to hear from you. To get involved, visit the Facebook page, Disposable Gloves Recycling London, where Leora will be sharing ways to get involved, recycle your gloves, and help make a difference in your local community. Education.
3: I'm Peter. I'm in second year studying at Oxford and I study PPE, which is philosophy, politics and economics.
4: And I'm Tom. I'm also a second year at Oxford, just finished, studying material science. In
0: the midst of lockdown, Peter, Tom and a few of their friends started to think about the way that the pandemic was affecting secondary school students and so decided to use what they learned from their university experience to help younger students struggling to navigate studying full time at home.
3: So near the start of lockdown, we realised that there was going to be an educational crisis well, as a biological one, uh, and the inequalities were going to be made much worse because different schools were going to offer different levels of support under school closures. And we've seen that to be the case now. Some of the statistics are really quite alarming. We were trying to think about what we could do to help as uni students. And so we had some long Skype conversations, but realized ultimately we weren't quite sure. As a result, we did some surveys on school students, trying to figure out what they were struggling with and what could help them. And we came to the conclusion that they were in a position where they were self studying much more than usual. of them but they didn't often feel like they had the tools or the confidence to do that effectively because it's difficult to study at home so tom suggested why don't we start off just by writing a guide for this and i said you know i think there's a lot we can write on this i think we can make this into an ebook
0: there's a big difference between the kind of independent homework and revision that secondary school students usually do and the kind of full-time homeschooling they've had to do since schools closed as a result of the pandemic so i asked peter and tom how their university experiences have shaped the way that they wrote the book
4: there's a big difference, I think, between studying at school where you do have a lot more contact hours. And although I've had self-study experience at school, never to the extent at university, and being at university, being told to do a problem sheet and having to go find books, find online resources, really formulated how I wrote my sections of the book.
3: Yeah, I guess I'd just add that particularly in art subjects at Oxford, it's very much uh independent and I think it's more independent at university whatever you're doing and wherever but the Oxford structure in particular emphasizes you know here's a reading list go learn the stuff and write an essay and then we'll discuss it so what that means is we had to learn to study on our own sort of from the get-go at university as well so it was rooted in our experience of studying at school and it's really designed for school students but it should be helpful for everyone and I think I learned a lot from trying to self-study more effectively while at uni.
0: We then talked about what the experience of putting the ebook together was like.
3: Putting it together was a challenge but a really fun mental exercise because we were writing something that was attempting to be comprehensive but it needed to be readable. We were writing something that a struggling 12-year-old or a very ambitious 18-year-old could both benefit from. And so we had to think not just about what we wrote and how we structured it, but how we communicated this in a way that was conversational, but not sort of condescending, a way that was yeah, simple, but didn't lose important nuance. So I think what we did was we had lots of calls and spent lots of time trying to write and rephrase things. I think an example of this would be, I spent like over an hour trying to figure out what word to use instead of generality at one point, and eventually realized it was just detail. But actually, these sorts of things presented a real challenge. If you're talking to people directly in that sort of tone, you have less room for being vague and less room for sort of beating around the bush and you're constrained in the linguistic tools you can use so you actually force yourself to think harder as for actually how it then got produced and what happened next so we wrote up a first draft we internally edited it over more long Skype calls um sent it out to a load of people teachers friends parents to to get feedback on. And that was really helpful. We got loads of feedback in a tiny time frame, in like a week. So I really appreciate that. And we put it out on this website. So far, the response has been really good. We sent it out to some students to get their early feedback and it was all really positive. In particular, we were really happy that they found it genuinely useful, that it was readable and that it was, it was friendly and it, it wasn't considered condescending because that was something we were really working to avoid. We wanted it to be like a friendly conversation. It also recently featured in The Telegraph and that's hopefully further expanded its reach. It's a name your... Price sort of model. So you can get it for free, or you can pay any amount you want. we've well, we already raised quite a lot of money basically for them. So we're excited to, to see that indirect effect and help people around the world in that way too.
4: I'd like to add that when Peter says we had long Skype calls, I distinctly remember 3 or 4 hours every night for a couple of weeks just looking and combing through our first draft, through small changes, re-editing, re-changing them until we were finally happy. But what we should have just done was get somebody else to read it because by the time we finished, we'd read it what, 10, 20 times and we we're going a bit crazy trying to make improvements that, well, I don't know if they were even there.
0: As someone who's spent weeks staring at the same Google Doc in my childhood bedroom. Room, i can relate what impact do you hope that this book will have on the students who are going to use this because there's been like a lot of talk about social mobility and the effect that the pandemic is having on widening divides between students from different kinds of school for example i was speaking to my little sister she's 15 so she's going into year 11 and like we were going through her homeschooling and she has like two hours of Google Classroom, which is not enough for someone who's about to be doing their GCSEs. Then I speak to like, other cousins who have like, really intense days, and there's no doubt that the quality of teaching is like, broadly changing depending on like, how well-equipped a school is. So what do you hope that your book will be able to give students who are having to take their education into their own hands in such an uncertain time?
3: I think this is a really good question and something we've been thinking about quite a lot. What we want to do is to help students self-study more effectively. And we think that that's a really useful skill, whether or not you're in a pandemic. Particularly right now, people are uniquely motivated to learn that skill. And there are a lot of motivated and disadvantaged students who we can reach out to and we can actually help self-study in a more effective way. We can't do that personally with everyone that we'd want to reach. That's why we wrote this ebook. It aims to be comprehensive. So we start off with a section on motivation, mindset and goals actually wanting to study and knowing what you want to achieve. And then we go to a section on how to get down and start working, which is often really difficult, before finally finishing with a guide to effective study. So a five-step process which is given in general, then applied to maths, English, lit, and chemistry as examples. And the idea is that that's comprehensive, but people can hop around the book and figure out what's useful for them. Ultimately, we want to give a framework for effective self-study so people can discover what works for them, but also some practical tips for getting started and making it happen. And in that way, to democratize education a bit more, because if you can self-study, you're much less reliant on the type of school that you go to, or whether your teacher's in good health. And you can you can achieve your goals in a much more direct way, and with less dependence on, on happening to be fortunate. So we hope that that way, we can really help students. But also, it's very fulfilling to be able to self-study for any purpose. And so we're hoping that this is a skill they can learn during the pandemic, but that can be helpful for them right the way through life.
4: Students who can self-study effectively are also, in my experience, more motivated and believe in themselves more throughout the life. And they feel more empowered. They feel that if they put their mind to something, then they can achieve it. That's my experience at school and at university. And hopefully the ebook can empower more young people to reach their goals and believe in themselves more.
0: You can get the ebook for free at learnbetterathome.com, And the team would love it if you also donated what you can to the charity Give Direct to support those suffering most as a result of COVID-19.
5: Community. So my name is Lauren Steele. Um, I'm a second year musical theatre student at the Guilford School of Acting. It's a heavily contact-based course, very practical. So I'm normally doing nine till six days in the studio most days of a week. So very interesting moving that online.
0: In the midst of lockdown, Lauren decided to get involved in her local community through a Facebook group created to organise Covid support. I asked her about how she got involved.
5: Someone who lives in my neighbourhood just kind of put, we have a community page on Facebook anyway and just kind of put is it worth having one that's more specifically for COVID help? And it started as a, just a couple of volunteers going, oh yeah, if someone needs their shopping doing or collecting a prescription, I'm happy to do that. Now it's turned into kind of a huge organisation. There's about 80 volunteers. Just this Saturday, we did a food bank donation day. So we go to our local pub and we set up cones and cars drive through, pop their boots, we get the food out and then it goes to lots of causes in the local area providing food. I personally do a weekly quiz to keep people entertained i have done a drawing challenge a daily drawing challenge so i'll say today draw a giraffe and people can draw a giraffe and share it if they want to and then we've got kind of a little art gallery on facebook and i've done a few workouts for people who are shielding so can't get out and kind of go for a walk just things they can do in the house with minimal equipment to make sure they're staying fit oh and i collect prescriptions that's my favorite thing to do really because it feels that that feels like a true way of helping the community. Other things, are more entertainment and that one is something that needs to be done. So it's a very humbling experience to do that.
0: Then I asked Lauren what she's learned from her experience.
5: The main thing has been learning about technology fast. <laughs> I think I assumed I was of that generation that knew how technology works, but oh wow, I didn't. I've had so many technical difficulties. There was one time where people were commenting on my quiz, and I was just completely ignoring them and babbling on to myself because I had no clue that Facebook had stopped all of the comments and didn't know how to fix it. So it's been a very interesting experience in terms of technology. And then with prescriptions, I think it's just very eye-opening how many vulnerable people live in this area. And I'm so grateful that we're around to be able to offer some assistance to those people and, and help them out. And yeah, it's just really highlighted kind of how important the pharmacies are, and the job that they do. And it's, yeah, just made me all more grateful that we live in a place that has free healthcare and things that people can jump onto. So yeah.
0: And then I asked Lauren about the effect that she hopes the group will have on her community in the long term.
5: I hope that it will continue this sense that if you need help you can just reach out and there will be someone here I mean we're talking about how we can bring this community group to do something else in the future in some way helping out in the community because it's been so lovely I mean I've got to know so many people who lived in houses literally down my street that I didn't even know were there and it's nice in a way because I think in modern society we don't we don't have that sense of community as much anymore because we are very kind of online or isolated. And this, in a weird way, even though you can't see people, has brought more people together and it'd be lovely to continue that.
0: If you're inspired by Laura's story and want to find a way to get involved, I would encourage you to look up local food banks, see if any local charities are looking for volunteers or hop online to websites like Volunteer or dosomething.org to make a difference in your local community. Healthcare.
6: Hi, my name is Malone McQuindy. I am a second year dash third year, depending on how you want to look at it. So I have completed my second year of university going into my third year in the next academic year.
0: In his second year of university, he created Mind the Gap, a handbook that shows how different medical conditions present on black and brown skin. I asked him about why he decided to create the handbook.
6: So the handbook comes from a place of Just life experiences, really, I'm sure, like, I would, I don't have raw stats for this, but I'm sure 75% of darker skinned people in this country can give you an experience where they've almost been, like, misdiagnosed or went to look for something on their skin and they just couldn't find it. And I knew this was something that happens all the time. Like, when I started medical school, I noticed that this was the issue. Like, there was no representation of darker skins anywhere. It was always just purely white skins. And I was like subconsciously you take white to be the normal as soon as you do that because we look at white skin and then we're like oh if it's red then that's abnormal if it's not then that's normal however i'd always question like okay that's true However, in in a darker person, it would not show up as red in the same way you're describing. This information is not applicable to darker skin. Um, I would often ask my lecturers, my tutors, like, okay, so what does this look like in darker skin? And there was never, like, a uniform answer. Whereas if you ask someone, what does this look like in white skin? They will tell you, oh, it's a red rash. Oh, when it gets old, it starts to get yellow. And for darker skin, it was just, there was never a uniform answer. It was like, "Eh." It was very sketchy in a very gray area, which clearly should not be the case, especially if we're at medical school. So then I applied to do a project with two members of staff at my university. They helped me to create Mind the Gap, essentially. And that's where the book was born. And here we are today.
0: So I heard about Mind the Gap while reading the news. I saw a lot of people in the medical community talking about how overdue a handbook of its type was. And so after finding out that it had been created by a student, I really wanted to find out more.
6: Um... The funniest thing about Mind the Gap, like to me, is it's not even out yet. (laughs) But the amount of attention, as in I've spoken to Sky News, BBC, ITV, The One Show, BMJ, British Medical Journal. Just so many people. And all I've done is post a front cover. So that really shows you how needed and how impactful this work can be. Because nobody has seen the real thing yet.
0: So I asked him how the book was going to be laid out and structured.
6: So essentially... Each page just has a picture, what it is, how to identify it, simple as, like, we didn't want to complicate it too much because I think one problem with a lot of academia in general and medicine in general is that it can often be inaccessible just because of the language used or a lot of things that you read at uni, learn at uni, if you took that to anyone on the street, they could not tell you what this means. And although ours is not entirely, like, made for lay people, if that makes sense, Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously there's a level of medical expertise that you need to maintain for But but my hope is that it can be very accessible to everyone like if it's not accessible through text it's accessible through pictures
0: yeah no definitely that's a really um, good way of doing it because it could be a case of not just being read by medical professionals but like parents who are trying to understand like if their kid is okay being able to see those photos and kind of not diagnose their kid but kind of be able to see if it's something that needs to be further investigators that's a really good way of doing it I
6: think the parents side of it is a very big almost like market if I can say that because so many parents message me oh my god thank you so much like my child had this 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 and it went missing thank you so much my child had this 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 we didn't even know and it's actually really it's heartwarming but almost disappointing at the same time that there's parents out there whose children get ill and they do not have a clue in the world what's going on and they just have to trust the medical professionals which them too at times cannot have a clue what's going on so it's like where do we go from here
0: (laughs) we talked about what the response to the book has been like from other people within the medical community
6: so it's funny because i think mind the gap is something that i would love to come out and speak about one day and give everyone like the ins and outs but I just don't feel like the time is now before I started the work it was kind of like people were kind of like oh why do we need that surely everyone knows like what do you mean that no one knows how to do like it seemed too obvious to be a problem like people like what do you mean how can you tell me that you can't identify something which we're taught about and I was like no but guys you guys are assuming that it just directly translates And I think it was just a case of people didn't know what they didn't know. And it's funny, like, even if I was to come out and speak about the ins and outs, there's so many, let me say, people who rejected my proposals, like so many. And I just carried on regardless. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, if people can't help me, I'm just going to have to help myself and do everything by myself. And then, yeah, as soon as I posted it, it's like some of those people who rejected me are now running back to me, like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, this is great. But I'm like, When I was looking for your help in the early days, you weren't there. But in general, I would say the medical field, they have taken it on very well. Um, People are looking very optimistic for the resource. And generally, it's been good. Obviously, like, when the amount of attention that my work has got, there's going to be a few negative comments here and there, but we're not going to focus on those.
0: Then I asked him what he hopes will be the long-term effect of the handbook.
6: Long-term impacts, like, there's so, so, so many, like... Yeah, there's just loads. Like for number one, like we know the stats such as that black women are five times more likely to die during pregnancy. All of the stats such as like black people are fifty percent less likely to get pain medications. In COVID, we saw people from a BAME background who are more likely to be affected by COVID. So I think fundamentally sometimes it stems down to the fact that one, healthcare professionals are late to detect these symptoms in doctors skin. It's just like even in COVID, some of the official advice from royal colleges would say stuff like, oh, look for if your baby goes blue around the lip. look for paleness. But already those two descriptors don't really apply in darker skin, like to an extent it might, but it's not the best use of terminology and language. So um, I feel like one of the impacts will be that people of darker skins will now have a better even relationship with these healthcare professionals. Healthcare professionals will feel more confident to treat people with darker skin. Essentially, more people will just be able to live because some people are dying as a result of these, I don't know if I can call it malpractice or negligence or ignorance, but people are dying as a result of this stuff. I hope it allows a better representation of like I'm going to say specifically Black people, because Black people are a minority in medicine. I hope it increases representation. Like, even with my work, I hope there's somewhere out there that there is a little Black boy or Black girl who's seen me on the news and thinking, you know what, I can do it. Funnily enough, one of the probably most shocking messages that I received in all of this is from a film company. And they were like, oh my God, this is great. Like, I find it so hard to moulage on Black people sometimes, which is basically like when an actor has like a disease or something, how they can put makeup on them to make it look real. And they were like, yeah, sometimes it's really difficult because there's no reference pictures, but this is great. So I feel like there's loads of different fields that this work will be really impactful in. And
0: finally, I asked him what advice he would give to other young people looking to make a change in their local community.
6: My advice would be if you want to create change, sometimes change comes from within. I think one thing that everyone needs to realise is that your individuality is so, so, so powerful. Like there isn't anybody else with the exact same life experiences as you. So your individuality is what makes you strong. Use your experiences, where you've been, what you've seen, what you know. No matter who you are, where you are, you're always powerful enough to make a change. And even on that, you like, you're never too small to make a change because tiny dominoes can knock over the biggest towers. Mosquitoes make people lose sleep at night. Yeah, you're just never too small to make a change. And I think another thing I'd probably even say is that... Sometimes to make a change, you need to not think about, not dwell on it too much because I could have easily sat there and said, oh, um, this is the issue. However, yeah, I'm sure someone's done something about it. Like, yeah, I can't be bothered to do something about it. Like, you have to get up and actually do the work.
0: Mind the Gap isn't out yet, but if you want to find out more about it, I'm going to pop a link to read more about it in the description of this podcast, as well as a link to follow him on Twitter it's easy to see the way that times of crisis bring out the worst in us. And even beyond the pandemic, these past couple of months have been tumultuous and difficult in so many ways. When I'm spending three hours scrolling on Twitter and seeing the worst of humanity, it's easy for me to feel hopeless and pessimistic about our shared future. But as I hope today's episode showed you, Sometimes a crisis collectively brings out the best in us, helps us to see the ways that we rely on each other, encourages us to help those who are going through even greater difficulties than us, and draws out our kindest, most empathetic selves. I definitely came away from speaking to this week's guests feeling inspired to do what I can to positively affect the world around me. And I hope you felt that way too. Feel that today you can do something small to change your world. Call a relative who's shielding just to have a chat, sign a petition to fight injustice, switch your disposable mask to something that's more sustainable or offer to help someone you know who's struggling right now. Because if we all carry out small acts of kindness and commit ourselves to positive change, the collective sum of all our individual actions have the power to change the world. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Class of 2020. I would really love it if you could rate and review the podcast on iTunes and share it so that it reaches even more students. If you want to get in contact or be a part of the podcast, email me at classof2020pod at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at classof2020podcast where I'll be sharing more stories, exclusive tips and resources. This podcast would not be what it is without the amazing students, graduates and experts who so graciously agreed to be interviewed. So I want to say a huge thank you to Bruce Hood, Lauren Steele, Marla Mukwende, Peter Wallach, Tom Flatters and Leora Marcus. I'm Rifaro this is Clatter 2020 and I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Thank you for listening. Bye.